Episode 19, SmallSat Conference, Part 1. You're listening to SpecsCast. Welcome to SpecsCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. I'm Phil, and today, me, TJ, and Augie will discuss the SmallSat Conference 2016. Augie spent three days at the SmallSat Conference in Utah and came back and we had a two-hour long discussion. So there's so much good stuff that we want to share with you that we're breaking this episode up into two parts. The first part will break down Gwen Shotwell's keynote presentation. Augie was actually in the audience for this presentation and live-tweeted the whole thing from our Twitter at RIT Specs. Augie also tweeted straight from the show floor for the other two days he was at the conference. And we'll talk about those experiences in part two. You won't miss anything if you don't read the tweets, but there are over 250 of them. They're really interesting and they will give you a great context for the discussion that follows. And just a disclaimer, as always, um, all the opinions that we present here are our own personal ones. Thanks. So on Tuesday, uh, Gwen Shotwell, president of SpaceX, gave a keynote speech at the SmallSat conference 2K16. What, 2K16? Who says that? And it's actually not the first time she's been to SmallSat. She um, you know, used to be a frequent goer, and this is her first time back in a few years. So um, she had a lot to say. And Augie, why don't you, you know, just talk about what it was like in the room with the atmosphere. Sure. Then we'll go through and pick out a few highlights um, and go into pretty good detail and sort of dissect, you know, all these little nuggets of information that came out of the speech. Yeah, what's funny is, is there was a lot of news today, um, but I don't think that Gwen kind of realized it. I think she kind of just speaks and answers the questions, and then there's just a ton of news that gets us all excited. Um, it, it's just, it's interesting. Um, but anyway, so to add to your intro a little bit, Gwen has been to the small set uh, conference before. Um, she's been great for the community, and uh, she hasn't been in a while, obviously pretty busy with SpaceX, but the last time she was here was eight years ago after the third Falcon 1 failure, which if you were following SpaceX back then, that was a rough time. Essentially, they they needed to get the third one up or they were gonna be bunk, and they didn't get the third one up, and Elon apparently gave this pretty impassioned speech about how they're not gonna fail, um, and they're gonna try a fourth one, and that was the one that ended up being successful, and they ended up getting the uh, NASA contract that kind of saved them. But anyway, Gwen at the speech, uh, Gwen, the last time she was here, uh, I guess gave a very similar speech and said, you know, we had our third failure, but we're not giving up. Uh, We've learned from this and and, uh, we're going to succeed. And it was great to see that they they were successful. And this year, that sounds kind of like a little bit of redemption to come back and say, sure. Hey, look at all what we've accomplished in the past eight years and and talk about their SpaceX's super ambitious plans for the future. Yep. Yeah, at least half of her her speech and the questions were Mars related and not necessarily uh, small set related at all, which is which is funny. I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, the, the conference was obviously focused on small sats, um, but with a company like SpaceX where there's just so much hype behind Mars and everyone just wants to get more tidbits of information on it, I, I like the blend of it. And uh, basically, one of the things she said was, 
if I if we had if I had said the things that I'm saying today eight years ago, I would have put in a been put in a straitjacket because um, it's just pretty crazy to think that they're they're going to try and send a red dragon a dragon capsule to Mars um, in two years. We talked about this 15 years ago. You know, we probably would have been institutionalized. You know, maybe there's some guys out there with my straitjacket as well after this. But uh, it is amazing how the conversation has changed. Now we can talk about Mars and going to Mars and. You know, people, some people probably think you're crazy, but not everybody thinks you're crazy. Like 15 years ago, people would have thought um, it. And, and people thought, you know, eight years ago, landing on a drone ship was crazy, and, and now they've done that um, multiple times. Um, it, it was just pretty awesome. It was a great environment. So it was probably half the time was spent in her speech, half the time was spent in Q&A. She, she kind of seemed to like the Q&A, so she left a lot of time for that. She uh, showed a chart of basically all the s small sets have that have flown over the past decade in comparison to all the sets that are scheduled to fly within the next decade and kind of predicted. Um, so there's been 916 small sets in the past 10 years, and there's estimated to be 3,600. Uh, it was funny wow. though because she kind of disagreed with her slide and said, "Actually, I'd imagine it to be over four times that number." Um, and frankly, I think that's an underestimate. Uh, just looking at uh, the constellations that are um, contemplated right now, um, you know, you could uh, probably multiply that by a factor of three or four. So she sees it expanding ridiculously, and um, I think uh, her perspective as well is that. Uh, the full and complete reuse of launch vehicles is going to change uh, access to space, not just for the larger primary satellites, but also for the secondary payloads, and, you know, the ride-sharing CubeSats and that kind of stuff. It's just going to totally change the industry. Yeah, also with the, the SpaceX Internet Constellation, if that goes up in the next decade, that's 3,000 to 4,000 small satellites. So That alone, yep. Yeah. Uh, she mentioned that access to space is is the biggest problem for the small sat community right now. Um, it, it it's not necessarily uh, price. Obviously, price matters because it's a competitive environment. Um, but really, they just need more things going into space, more opportunities, and that's definitely gotten better. Uh, NASA did a presentation where last year they were backlogged with like 56 missions. Uh, this year they've almost totally cleared out their backlog and they're ready to go with more designs for Alana, CSLI, whatever whatever they're going to send uh, CubeSats. So then Gwen kind of went uh, into reusability, um, kind of bringing everybody that was up to speed. Uh, oh, it was funny. She said, obviously we're going to try and bring back the second stage. May take us five years or so to figure that one out. Obviously, we'd like to get it as, as inexpensive as possible, but still a long way to go. And obviously, we're, we're going to try to bring back the second stage as well. Maybe that'll take us another five years or so to figure that one out. But the key is, don't throw your hardware out after you've used it. Can we just take a step back and say, you know, look at the second stage in general? So we've already seen the first stage go up, kind of chuck a dragon or a satellite into orbit, flip around and land on a drone ship or back at the launch site. The second stage is what, you know, it's another um, Merlin or MVAC or for vacuum Merlin engine that powers whatever it is into orbit. So to go to orbit, you know, or like geosynchronous transfer orbit, whatever that is. So it's like way 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 faster than anything the the falcon 9 first stage would see right so just that alone the speed alone plus the fact that 
you know, it has to be small because you can't take that much fuel because the more fuel you take, the less efficient it gets. And then it's going so high that like is so important. You can't propulsively land the thing. It's just insane. So my interpretation of it, it, it could be either uh, one of two things. They're planning on bringing back the second stage of their next rocket, uh, BFR, MCT, whatever whatever it may be, because um, obviously that needs to come back. Or what may be more likely is that she's referencing the um, second stage on a Falcon rocket. Um, and Elon's mentioned before that bringing back the second stage on something like Falcon Heavy uh, would be something that they're interested in, uh, but that they should probably just focus on the Mars rocket. Uh, he tweeted something like that uh, fairly recently. Um, so I, I kind of wonder what what I, I think she's referencing the Falcon second stage, though. And some discussion that we saw on um, the SpaceX subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash SpaceX. There's some discussion about this tidbit of information right here. You know, as reusability gets better, the cost of essentially just refueling a rocket um, brings the first stage costs way down. Then where's your bottleneck for a cost? It's in the second stage because you're tossing it away. Yep. So I guess just from a business standpoint, it would have to be, you know, if you're optimizing the whole system, the whole Falcon 9 launch system for cost, it's the natural progression of things. And I wonder if if that's was her speculating on the company or if that was um, an actual commitment. Um, I, I think it was a, a pretty confirmed thing that they're working on it. Um, may not be a lot of people working on it, but that they're work, trying to figure it out uh, currently. And, and the way that you said it, I think, is a, the, the SpaceX approach to things. It's kind of the first principles, like this should be done because of this, this, and this, and then figure out why. Um, because if um, they can lower the cost for the first stage, uh, then it's really not that expensive for them to do a launch at all if they lower the cost for the second stage, which means they could bring a lot less payload if they needed to into orbit, but as long as they were returning the second stage, they could just fire it again and send it back up. Uh, one of the big things uh, was the JCSAT-14 uh, static fire, uh, which has been static fired, I believe, three times already. Yeah, so there are... They're really pushing that thing. This is the rocket that Elon said would be the, the lost leader for them because it suffered the most damage because it came back from a GTO mission. Um, so I guess my interpretation of it um, is that anytime they have free pad space at McGregor to do some static fires, they're going to throw JCCF-14 on there and they're going to test the shit out of it. And they're going to keep doing that. Um, she estimated 8 to 14 times uh, before they refly any booster. So what we're doing is we're going to run as many tests on this stage uh, as we can pull off uh, in between doing the production missions that we have to go test on that stand. And hopefully we'll get to, well, more than four, but maybe eight to ten of these before we go ahead and refly. And they, they also, she also mentioned that they were going to try and refly two boosters that have already been landed by the end of the year. We may fly two of the previously space tested, previously flown hardware, um, previously demonstrated hardware this year. They've only landed four. Right, so two of them are getting reflown. The first one is obviously going on stage to uh, Hawthorne to be on display. So by process of elimination, we know what one, ones those are. It's going to be uh, CRS-9 and... Uh, CRS-8, I believe, is scheduled to be first, and then probably CRS-9 because it is the most gentle 
landing ones. Yeah. You said they, they're going to test it 8 to 14 times. Now, is that, you know, in parentheses, or until failure? Or are they refurbishing it and servicing it between... I, I'm basically uh, trying to quote her a paraphraser as close as possible as I, as I could type. And uh, she did not say that specifically. I really wish as my question I would have asked her to clarify that. I was under the impression that it wasn't until failure. It was until... Uh, they were far beyond what they thought would be kind of the... Um, they're, they're developing their margin. Right. So they're trying to push the limit, but they're not necessarily trying to go past the limit. Um, so I don't know. I, they may never fly. Uh, JC set 14 again. That's kind of up in the air as well. Um, it would be funny if, if, you know, they flew it 8 to 14 times and then were like, screw it and tried to launch it. Um, but I don't really see them doing that either. <laughs> I'm not sure. Honestly, I, I wish I had uh, clarified that one. Uh, one more question. Maybe this was answered in the in the Q&A. Between static fires of the flown vehicle, yep. do they service the engines at all? Or are there inspections? Yeah, that, that, was, in the, that was in the Q&A, or at least in her presentation. Um, she said that they replaced the uh, some stuff, but only because they wanted to replace the seals so that they could give them the new modernized, upgraded seal. Those engines have fired. We did not refurbish the engines because of the reuse. We did want to change some of the seals on the on the engine to basically upgrade them to the current version. Um, but those engines, we basically took them off, tested them, and put them back on the vehicle, and they're firing them right now. Since then, um, they've, I guess, made more iterations on the Merlin engine. Um, and they've had a better seal, so they basically just replaced um, the, the – they had to make that upgrade. And her words were that uh, essentially they could refly it as is, um, but that they made this change just so it could be modernized like all their other rockets. Uh, and I think that's especially important if they're going to launch with their current version going forward. There's no reason to test on something that they're not going to use because uh, if failure comes from that, that's not helpful. That doesn't tell them anything. Uh, another uh, thing I was reading was that well, one of the Q&A questions is the sound at McGregor. Uh, and they said that the new vertical test stand that has a, a underground trench with a full stage is actually quieter than a above ground single Merlin test. So nine engines firing at once on their new test stand puts out less energy or less sound energy. The booster stand that you saw there is dramatically quieter. In fact, the Merlin test, you know, just one instead of nine, is much louder than the nine engine tests. Which is, you know, good for neighbor relations. Yeah, her, her yeah, response to that as well, um, I remember that question, uh, was along the lines of that the uh, people around McGregor did not mind. Uh, there's a lot of heritage there in, in the space industry, and uh, she's been to, she was talking about how she had been to some, I guess, town hall meetings there, and that the people, m majority of the people there are just super excited and don't mind the, the noise at all. And we said, uh, you know, to get to Mars, you got to pass through McGregor, and they liked that a lot. Um, but you're right. I mean, SpaceX is firing, uh, for, uh, static firing rockets and engines there literally every day, so it could be quite the noise. Yeah. Also, another interesting bit of news, Augie, if I'm reading your tweets right, uh, is that they're moving away from single-engine test fires to full-stage test fires. We are likely to go away from single-engine tests on Merlin. You know, once we finalize the design and um, decrease variability, then we'll just accept and test the engines on the stage. 
So I thought one of the biggest things, uh, at least for the small sat conference, uh, was was this piece of news, and I was kind of surprised there wasn't a ton of like, uh, there wasn't a huge reaction on this one from the crowd. I don't know if it maybe went over some people's heads or not, but uh, she said uh, that Red Dragon um, is going to have space in the trunk for small satellites to go to Mars. Uh, Red Dragon uh, will probably have space both in the trunk to deploy satellites on the way, small satellites. Uh, on the way to Mars, as well as capacity in the Dragon capsule uh, to land. Um, so I'm not sure if people are maybe still skeptical of their 2018 Mars plans um, or what, but she basically said, you know, you guys should put your heads together, come up with some missions, uh, especially stuff that relates to colonizing Mars, because uh, they're not really... SpaceX can't do everything, you know? The small sat community is going to be great for helping in that endeavor. And uh, one of the things she mentioned as being the hardest thing in their plans to Mars is in situ resource utilization, um, basically figuring out how to get fuel from Mars uh, in order to power your trip back home. So I just want to explain what the trunk is for people that may not know the terminology or may not be familiar with Dragon. Dragon launches, you know... Um, when it goes into space, there's the capsule where people can go in or cargo can go in and it's like teardrop shape with a heat shield on the bottom and then connected to it on the bottom is a cylinder that has solar panels and usually it's used for unpressurized cargo or cargo that's too big to fit inside the capsule like the docking adapter that was just installed onto the space station. So like this is a perfect place to put small sats because it's unpressurized, you know, it's a big wide open space, you can fit a ton of junk in there. But um, in the normal mission operations for the, the current Dragon and the new one, the trunk detaches, the, the trunk separates from the main capsule. And this is by design, right? So I'm a little confused by this. Like, there's space in the trunk to bring things to Mars um, because the Dragon's going there anyways and there's space in the trunk. It's a little vague on, on what the mission operations would be. Would they just like spit out the um, a bunch of CubeSats from a pea pod before it detaches? And like the trunk would burn up in the atmosphere. So this from the, my understanding, uh, very similar to what EM-1 is proposing, right? Is that you're boosting to Mars. And so you can put CubeSats in the trunk and then deploy them. You know, say it's like a 3U or a 6U size CubeSat and you know, if you deploy that earlier before you enter Mars orbit, you can, a very small amount of Delta V can put you in either a highly elliptical orbit uh, and then get a CubeSat oh, to orbit around Mars. Also, so they would bring uh, it along and then spit it out before it gets to Mars. So then it's just, mm -hmm. oh, hey, look, we're already on our way to Mars and they can just make their own adjustments from there. Yeah. So either a highly elliptical orbit, they might decide to go for a flyby. Also, what's great is that NASA has a whole network of satellites orbiting Mars. So you don't have to have a communication system in the CubeSat that can go all the way back to Earth. You just need to broadcast that to one of the orbiting Mars satellites, and then they can relay it to the Deep Space Network. Very similar to the uh, Europa mission you talked about, with Europa Clipper being that relay. Um, so there's a lots and lots of challenges, especially from you know a mission design standpoint of you know what orbit you need to be in and antennas being able to see each other and even determining where the CubeSat is because, you know, when you're orbiting the Earth, you're like, okay, I can relatively easily find the Earth's pointed down. And 
when you're at Mars, you don't have that reference point. So it's going to be Plus very an uh, eight minute delay, right? And it's going to be mostly Mars is autonomous. so far away that there is a that the speed of light actually matters, and there's a delay between the signals we can send and receive. So it's going to have to be autonomous. But you know, it's not like some university or some business that's making small satellites could have ever dreamed of making a small satellite orbiter of Mars. You know, just a couple of years ago. So. It's coming though. I talked to a lot of providers of small satellite buses and stuff like that and uh, really pressed them hard on what are they thinking about for Mars. And obviously most of them hadn't really thought about it yet. There isn't really a, a ton of money in that yet, but it's coming. I mean, whether in in 2018 or 2020, um, there's going to be a lot, a lot of CubeSats going to Mars. And this is not to mention that Elon... Um you know, said a, a couple, maybe a month ago, he wants a dragon to go to Mars every opportunity, every every 26 months. So if you bring a trunk, <laughs> a trunk load um, of small sets to Mars every two years, dude, that's a lot of mass. Yeah, so one of the tweets, uh, I believe, is talking about how they're, they really want trunk payloads, CubeSats to go in the dragon trunk, but for payloads, there's going to be inside Red Dragon. Uh, one of the problems they haven't figured out a solution for is how to get those scientific payloads outside of Dragon onto the Martian surface where they can do that uh, science. So I thought that was interesting, but, you know, they do have uh, roughly two years to get that. SpaceX isn't even sure yet how they're going to get their experiments out of Dragon and onto the surface of Mars. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I'd kind of argue whether it matters to worry about it too much right now because... Right now, SpaceX has to get a dragon to Mars and land it without, you know, rapid unplanned disassembly. And maybe, you know, contracting out or soliciting out people to say like, hey, we've got space. Now you figure it out or or maybe taking in their advice. I, I think it's a, more worth their time to focus on getting a vehicle. No, I agree. I think that's kind of Shawwell's point is that, you know, they're going to try and land on Mars and that will be the achievement. But at the same time, they're going to bring, if successful, more payload to Mars than ever before. Bigger than anything NASA's ever done. So it makes sense to utilize that space with some really high quality experiments. So um, I think you're right in that, you know, it's it's kind of, the community's job. This is kind of where we can help. You guys have to put your put your heads together and think of cool stuff to do. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to get you there, and I'm gonna try to figure out how to get you on the surface instead of uh, just in the capsule. So we're working on that. Uh, small tidbit, but I think important. Someone asked uh, during the Q and A, you know, if they were looking at hybrid propellants for liftoff, for booster propulsion. We are we're we're liquids people for sure. Solids are not our expertise, and hybrids. We're not looking at hybrids, though others clearly are, even for the purpose of, uh, of Mars. Uh, Gwen said they're looking at some electric propulsion for actually in space. Um, this probably has a lot to do with their satellite constellation, the broadband internet that they're building. But she mentioned uh, nuclear. And nuclear, I, there's a lot of work to do, but I think it holds promise. So I think that kind of maybe lends credence to the idea that SpaceX is interested in nuclear. And this is kind of something that I've kind of thought they were interested in for a while but never really got any form of confirmation on and this doesn't necessarily confirm that but it does say that they haven't yet ruled out nuclear um and 
nuclear is pretty awesome if you really look into it. So we actually talked about this in the uh, the interstellar travel episode, right? Uh, with chemical rockets, the energy uh, to accelerate the reaction mass is contained within the reaction mass. Uh, with nuclear en- uh, engine, the energy comes from radioactive de- decay, and then you flow a reaction mass through that. Uh, so the Nerva engine had uh, uh, radioactive bricks that formed a reactor, and then they would flow hydrogen through that, uh, and that would heat it up really uh, very hot. You get a hot heated gas, and then you expand that through a nozzle, and then it operates very similar to a normal rocket engine. The, the key thing is that uh, you break out of a relationship where if you add more mass, you add a proportional amount of energy with a chemical rocket. So you can't uh, increase the exhaust velocity any more than the theoretical ideal for the fuel. And so, you know, with good engine design, you can get to within 90, 95% of that theoretical maximum. Uh, with a nuclear engine, uh, you can design in such a way that you can increase thrust uh, and increase uh, exhaust velocity by putting in more reaction mass because your reaction mass and your energy input are separate. They're super efficient and super awesome. I think it's interesting. Um, Elon, in an interview a couple months ago, uh, he was talking about Mars. He was talking about uh, getting that trip from Earth to Mars from six months down to three months and then eventually down to one month. Um, and physically that's possible. You get a, an exponential increase in the energy required. Uh, so that one month sweet spot is achievable, but only with nuclear propulsion. And so he was talking about, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, being able to get from Earth to Mars in less than a month, uh, nuclear engines would be the technology required for that. So that's an interesting, you know, we can relate what Gwyn's saying long term with what Elon says because he loves to bring up new ideas. I think September is going to be great for this. I think we're going to get a lot more information. Um, mm-hmm. So let me let me go through some of the some of the R stuff just real quick. Uh, I don't know if we mentioned in this segment, uh, but they shipped their Raptor engine to McGregor, Texas. This is going to be their Methalox engine. That is awesome news. It'll be great to see in the next couple months a YouTube video of that uh, firing. This engine is like a mythical. You know, it's, it's like it's one of the you know cornerstones to the Mars plan because it's going to run on liquid oxygen and, and methane, both of which can be you know obtained on Mars. SpaceX has kept this super tight under wraps, so it, it's kind of interesting that she let us see behind the veil real quick and and know even that it's real being test fired right now. <laughs> it's it's awesome news. I'm really excited. Yeah. Another important thing is that rockets are really built atop engines, both literally and from a system design uh, perspective. With the Saturn V, uh, the F1 engine, which had five of those, that was an Air Force program that was started way before uh, NASA existed and NASA was planning to build a Saturn V. And so that engine was de- starting to develop, and they're like, okay, we have this super powerful uh, Carolox engine. We can take five of those and then build our three-stage system atop that. So the fact that SpaceX finally has working test articles means that, you know, until September we get concrete details, this is a really good sign that uh, BFR and MCT are on track, uh, that they've worked out a lot of the preliminary design, which is great. It's funny, again, about all these tidbits that she mentions that are just awesome information, like Raptor. Um, She mentions them 
so nonchalantly. Like it wasn't something that she came into the conference like, oh, I'm going to tell them about this. I'm going to drop this news tidbit on them, which is kind of how I think Elon does things sometimes. Uh, but it's just kind of like it's very organic. It's like, oh, I, I feel like sharing them this or they ask this question. It's, it's nice to have a company that it feels like you can actually get information out of them. I think all this stuff came out of the Q&A and this is just people asking her specifically and she didn't really shy away from, from any questions. The only thing that she did kind of dodge was uh, funny that it happened at the small sack conference, but she was asked to spread more details on the, uh, the broadband constellation, the satellite constellation, and she kind of just said she doesn't know that much about it. She wasn't dodging. Um, it's just Elon's project. Anyway, um, so one of the other things, uh, someone asked about the Falcon 1, if with the market today, uh, if they were interested in maybe getting back into the small satellite launch business and going back to designing something like the Falcon 1. We certainly couldn't get it to earn its place on the factory floor. Uh, Falcon 9 and Dragon were much, um, were much better products for us to pursue without completely uh, giving up on the small satellite market. I'm hoping that the case has changed enough, certainly the numbers, uh, both the investment numbers as well as the, um, the number of launches uh, has changed dramatically. And that's really what Falcon 1 did not have at the time. I think they should focus on Falcon 9 and just going bigger. Um, I think some people were kind of surprised by that, uh, but there are other uh, launchers out there that can fill that need, like Firefly Electron, um, Launcher 1. and. Uh, uh, she did add, though, that she thinks that the um, industry has changed more since they were, were you know, trying to sell Falcon 1. She said that was a hard sell uh, back in the day. But because the industry has changed so much, uh, it would be easier nowadays. And I think that bodes really well for these small launchers. Um, but they're not interested in, in building anything smaller. Yeah. Now, one thing about that was, uh, like, Gwen Shotwell was, you know, one of the first employees of SpaceX and she was literally the person going to those meetings trying to sell Falcon to uh, small sat makers uh, I think all, you mentioned that uh, in the tweets that during her actual talk she talked about those group rides where you know something like Sherpa where you have a dispenser and lots of CubeSats all in one uh, one go riding on a rocket or you know throwing six or ten in the back of a dragon that lets them you know, serve many more CubeSats uh, and projects than having a dedicated Falcon 1 for less cost. So I think it's interesting that, you know, SpaceX is super interested in small sats and is super interested in serving small sat customers, but they don't like those small rockets. And I think that might, um, I don't say would be an issue, but I think that's telling about, you know, the new crop of small satellite launchers we see coming up with Firefly and Electron. She threw him a bone and said she thinks the market is different and that they could work, but, you know, how much of that was just, you know, kind of appealing to the crowd? No, I think I think for sure that there is a market, like, as evidenced by multiple new small launch providers, there is a, a big market. I think the point of SpaceX not going for it is more like, you know, can you spend uh, a bunch of million dollars and get a bunch of, like a bunch more million dollars from one big satellite or a lot more mass? Or do you spend a couple million dollars and not don't get that much 
profit margin. I think it, it comes down to the fact that since now SpaceX is capable of built of serving this um, the the higher mass market, I, I think it's it's more um, just more profitable for them, especially because think about it, there are fewer competitors that can do that, which means there's more opportunity for SpaceX. You know, it's, it's just SpaceX has changed in their capabilities. For SpaceX as a company, there's not really a business case for it. It would, it would spread them thinner and it would be uh, focused on something where they have bigger fish to fry. They have bigger goals. They're trying to get to more Mars. Com- more competition. They can't charge as much for it, which means they can't yep. get as much profit for it. It's just not. And they would have to redevelop reuse altogether if they wanted to go mm-hmm. with a small launcher or they'd end up going back to disposable, which is not what they want to do at all. Yeah, there are already people taking care of it. It's there's money elsewhere. Oh, I totally agree with their philosophy. I think it's a great move to not to not move into back into the small launcher business. Uh, so looking at the uh, the R slash SpaceX summary, and they have um, a question of: Are they working on second stage, uh, lasting longer for direct uh, geo insertions? Uh, for those that don't know, right now SpaceX launches into a geosynchronous transfer orbit, which is an elliptical orbit with one end uh, in low Earth orbit and one end uh, at or past geosynchronous orbit altitude. And it's up to the satellite to uh, go to the apoapsis and then burn to circularize. Right now, it's up to SpaceX does half the job and the satellite does half the job. Uh, But for some military satellites, uh, for various reasons, they want the satellite to be the rocket to put the satellite into exactly the orbit they want. Um, and so there's an issue where, you know, it's relatively quick to go from the ground to low Earth orbit, uh, but you have to coast all the way out to geosynchronous orbit, and that's several hours. Uh, and right now, the batteries on the second stage of Falcon 9 would die. Um, so they said that specifically for the Department of Defense, that they would modify the second stage to meet that requirement. Yeah, so we're working on the extended mission kit. It's required to uh, be certified by the Air Force. Those are missions that you have to be able to, to go after. Uh, and so we're, we're doing it. Longer life electronics, um, making sure the propellant is, uh, uh, is ready to, to go for those longer missions. Yeah, we definitely plan on it. So that's a really cool confirmation of something we expected because uh, if you wanted to do those certain military launches, you have to have that capability. I wonder if that's going to just flow down into all the second stages from now on and be a base capability, or if that's going to just be an optional upgrade for a little extra money that the government would be willing to pay. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, so SpaceX is unusual in that they publish their prices on their website. Uh, no other launch provider does this. However, this is for the standard uh, service is that quoted price. So if you want a customized adapter, that's an extra cost, which they'll talk to you about over the phone if you're a, a satellite company. Um, so I'm sure that that second, uh, second stage modifications would fall into those additional services with additional uh, costs. Elon also mentioned that just for dealing with the government and their additional requirements, that there'd probably be a 50% premium on government missions just because the, the government wants specific accountability and extra checks that a commercial customer wouldn't uh, want always. Uh, a little bit about planetary protection. We won't get a, a license to fly uh, without uh, making sure we're not harming the, the ecosystem of, of Mars. So we're working with NASA, we're working with the FAA to make sure uh, 
we do the right things there. But it, it's it's funny because eventually when we get to human launches, uh, that's not going to matter anyway. Um, so they're kind of preserving it just for the time being. Uh, the whole thing I find kind of kind of funny. I mean, it's good to preserve, but at some point, like we're we want to go there. We shouldn't just hold it up until we've scoured every inch of the planet because um, we haven't scoured every inch of Earth yet either. I mean, I think that it's totally important that we find out if there is life there. That's a super important goal. But I think that if it holds back human missions, it is not worth it because we've already looked. And how how much? At what point do you say, okay, we've looked enough? No, there are some other good uh, space exploration podcasts that I've actually been listening to um, that have talked about that exact question of why do we care so much about what's already there if we're just going to go and stomp on it all anyways. There are two great ones. Um, are We There Yet with Brendan Byrne, who was on the show um, for an episode not too long ago. And there's also one from NASA Ames called um, NASA in Silicon Valley. And they bring on NASA folk that, that are, are thinking about these things. I've actually been listening to those personally. And they're quite good. What's your takeaway from Gwyn's speech? My takeaway, well, just, uh, what, okay, Gwen is, is very down to earth. And, and that's something that I didn't really know uh, what to expect. Um, I've watched a ton of videos with Elon, a uh, ton of interviews. I, I kind of feel like I know Elon's personality, at least in a public setting. Uh, Gwen, not so much, and it was really awesome to see her like uh, in this environment. She just seemed really comfortable with everybody. Um, she seemed super confident about the outlook of SpaceX. Um, everyone else, um, I think, is finally coming around to, to SpaceX's goals. Um, I think a lot of people still think uh, Mars is pretty ambitious and the 2018 window may not be achievable for them. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there were a lot of people that didn't think uh, landing on a drone ship was achievable. And now that SpaceX has achieved that, it's kind of like, okay, everyone is starting to take them much more seriously. Even the outrageous things that they say, it's like, uh, you know, people feel like they don't want to bet against SpaceX. And I think that was great to see. I think that's kind of um, my biggest takeaway uh, from her speech is really on just the public's reaction to it. TJ, any, any closing words? Oh, uh, with regards to Gwen, like, this was a really amazing uh, news day for SpaceX, you know. Uh, now that the launch rate's picking up, you know, we seem to have something SpaceX-related happening every couple days. Uh, in the past, you could go months without any uh, SpaceX news. So the fact that we had uh, confirmation that Raptor is a development unit is done and it's ready to be tested as a whole unit which is awesome uh we got very coy teasing about uh, spacex net um and just a little bit more on red dragon and how they're working with the community i think that's all really awesome really exciting and that concludes part one of our two-part discussion on the SmallSat Conference 2016 uh, with Augie, who was at the conference over the weekend, live tweeting for us at RIT Specs. The SmallSat Conference was held at Utah State University in Logan, Utah from August 6th to 11th. You can find out everything about the conference, including a manifest of all the companies that were there, all the speakers with abstracts on their speeches, everything you need to know about SmallSat conference at smallsat.org. 
Don't forget to get in touch with us. You can ask us questions, make requests, or just talk about space. Send an email to specscast at gmail.com or tweet to us at RIT Specs. We'll be back in a few days with part two of our small sat conference coverage. And in the future, we'll have more interviews with folks within the space industry. And starting the first week of September, our regular weekly discussions will make a return. Thanks for listening to Specscast. Our music is by Kevin Hartnell.